the core of what sets us up for success as investors. And that is improving ourselves on an ongoing basis, learning from what we're doing and continuing to grow and expand. As a loyal best ever listener, you know that it's important that we as entrepreneurs focus on managing our time effectively, which is why we're always looking for ways to automate the basic duties of our business so that we can focus more time on our money-making activities. That's why I want to introduce you to Rentler.com. At Rentler, landlords and property managers can perform all their duties in one place. Rentler offers tools that allow you to automate tasks like listing a unit for rent, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent, and managing the maintenance requests. And even better, these tools are offered at zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever to get started today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And we're doing Facebook. Uh, what am I doing? We are doing Facebook Live, but that's not the word I was looking for. We're doing Follow Along Friday for everyone who is watching us now via Facebook Live. Hello. Feel free to comment below. And if you're listening to us on the podcast, then hello as well. And today we're going to be talking about things that we've learned since last time we did Follow Along Friday, approximately a week ago, and how those lessons can be applied to what you're doing, best ever listeners. So how do we want to approach this deal? Uh, well, before we dive into our business updates, we had a really good question come to us from a best number listener named Mike. And his message started off by praising your podcast, multiple paragraphs doing that. So I thought that was cool. So we appreciate that, Mike. But his question was, what your thoughts are on starting out as a single family investor or if you're able to jump straight into larger apartments? So I'll read his exact question first, and then I figured we could have a conversation around it and and get your thoughts on this question. So Mike says, I was wondering your opinion on real estate investing. If you could go back, would you have gone into multifamily investing sooner, or do you think it was a good idea that you had a few single-family residences under your belt first? It just seems like all the successful investors end up in large multifamily eventually. Cool. Well, I'd say, I think how you paraphrase it initially is slightly different, but the slightly part is important from what he asked. I think how you paraphrase it was, should people start in multifamily or single family? But what he asked was, if I had to go back, what would I do? Mm -hmm. And most times when you ask someone, if you could go back and do X, Y, Z differently, would you? Unless they murdered someone they're probably not going to say I'd like to do it differently because they're probably going to follow up with, because if I did do it differently, then I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Mm -hmm. Unless just Armageddon happened in their business and or personal life, then that's another thing. But for the most part, you're going to get an answer. If you ask someone, would you do it differently? You're going to get an answer. Well, but then this X, Y, Z wouldn't happen. I wouldn't have met my wife or I wouldn't have my child or I wouldn't have, in my case, the portfolio that I have with our partners because I didn't follow the same process. So for the gentleman who asked the question, I'll answer your intention behind the question, but just a comment about the way that it was phrased. 
So now to really how you paraphrase it, I think that's more relevant Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't change what I did for the reasons I just said. So is it better to start with single families versus multifamilies or is it better to start with multifamilies over single families? The answer is yes. And I answered yes to both. (laughs) I don't think it matters. I really don't because I've gotten to where I'm at starting with single families. I think it's a tactical question and really it is sidestepping the core of what sets us up for success as investors. And that is improving ourselves on an ongoing basis, learning from what we're doing and continuing to grow and expand. I know that sounds not vague, but esoteric, but it's just how it is. And that's not the answer that you're looking for, then sorry. That's just what it is. I can tell you I've gotten this place. Yeah, I started out with single family homes, but I was also teaching others after I bought a couple in New York City who were asking me, how the heck are you doing this while having a full-time job? So I started teaching others. I started learning through teaching. Everyone Mm -hmm. learns more. It reinforces the content whenever we tell others about it. And then I grew from there and I got this podcast, daily podcast, learn a whole lot. Yesterday was my interview day. Holy cow. Full transparency, sometimes I get annoyed and worn down on interview day. (laughs) I mean, I interview eight or nine people a day on my interview day. But yesterday in particular, I just got phenomenal lessons interview after interview. I mean, I interviewed someone who got a 10-unit off-market through a direct mail campaign. He went through how he did that. Interviewed someone who is in Louisville and his company builds multifamily developments using tax credits. Interviewed someone who went bankrupt and now is doing over $50 million worth of development. He's doing a 200 plus bedroom community for student housing in upstate New York. Tons of interviews. And the point is that if we don't have a podcast, then it's still learning. So coming full circle to answer the question directly, either one, I don't think it matters. As long as you're learning the whole time and you're improving each step of the way, because here's the thing. I think the reason why this question is asking, I understand the question why we would ask it. It's, hey, I want to get farther faster. But the reason why it's asked is because, is it going to take me too long if I start at single families to get to make a whole lot of money with larger stuff. And that's basically another way to rephrase the question. Am I losing out? Is there an opportunity cost with me buying single family homes when I could have started larger and made more money in a shorter period of time? That's the question. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there is a disadvantage because of what I've done starting with the single families for single family homes and the large multifamily. So those are my thoughts. I agree. I think when I was looking at this question, I think at least from my perspective, the key point is kind of where you're at right now in your life is going to tell you not what you should do, what you can do, but like what would be the most effective. Like if you just learned about real estate yesterday, then you're probably not going to be buying an apartment. It's your first deal. If you want to do a deal like very soon, but if you've been listening to podcasts for months or for years, if you've been involved in real estate in some other capacity, whether you're a broker or if you're raising money for someone else, 
like the guy that hopefully buy an apartment with, his first deal is going to be an apartment, but that's because he's educating himself on apartments. He has a podcast about apartments. He's raised money for apartments before. So yeah, I guess technically you can say he's done a deal before because he raised money for apartments. But my point is it kind of depends on where you're at. Like for me, I didn't know anything about real estate at all when I bought my first building. And everything at the time went like very, very poorly. And I'm really glad that it happened on a small building, not a 400 unit apartment building. And of course, I'm not necessarily sure if he's asking about doing an actual syndication deal or using his own money to buy an apartment. But that's also kind of another issue. Like if you've never heard about apartments before, but you're a multimillionaire through other reasons, then an apartment could be something that's on your plate. But if you've never heard of it before and you're in college, you have no money. Obviously, you could potentially raise money from someone else, but that takes time to build up your pipeline of investors and your credibility in general. I think it's kind of important, as you said, kind of where you're at education-wise, experience-wise, and money-wise to determine what would be the best bet because at the end of the day, at least this is how it was for me, but my first deal went so poorly. I was afraid of doing another deal for a year or two because Mm -hmm. of how, how bad it went because I jumped right in and it's not necessarily that I went above my capabilities, it was just kind of a shock because I just was not expecting it because I had unrealistic expectations going in. So that's kind of my thought. Of course, your first deal could be a large apartment, but it's probably not going to be a large apartment if you just heard about real estate yesterday and have no experience and don't really know anyone. Yeah. I'm going to assume this individual didn't hear about it yesterday. I mean, most people who listen to the podcast didn't just hear about real estate yesterday, but I'm going to assume they have some baseline knowledge but they haven't pulled the trigger on anything, but they're fairly intelligent about just the lay of the land. But I'd say I agree with you on the experience, money, and I forget what the third thing you I said. Credibility, I think is what I said. Credibility? Yeah, yeah. I think most important, and this gets into the esoteric thing that I was talking about earlier, is your psychology. Where are you at from a psychological standpoint? How tough are you? How tough is your mind? How do you handle adversity? Mm-hmm. And how have you handled it in the past? And are you really ready for it? Because I guarantee you that if you are starting larger, that's fine. But the problems that you're going to come across from a mindset standpoint will be proportionately larger than if you started with a single family. Because you got more money at stake. And there's different components that are needing to be addressed. Management's more of a issue. Maintenance, you've got more people under your roof. So be self-aware with yourself on how you are psychologically because Tony Robbins talks about it's 80% psychology, 20% skill. I agree with that. It might be 90% psychology, 10% skill. Somewhere in between or somewhere around that range. And first off, if you're asking a question via this podcast, then you're well on your way because you're already elevating yourself above the crowd because you're listening to this podcast. And it's not because you and I say anything novel. It's just you're conditioning your mind to learn more. And that's great. So it's likely you do that in other things in your life as well. That's my hypothesis. So do a check on your psychology, perhaps do the Perry Marshall exercise in the book 80-20 that Perry Marshall wrote. And that exercise is where you ask those who are around you 
your unique skill set. And then they'll tell you what you're uniquely good at. And if they don't mention, hey, you do what it takes, you're resourceful, I can count on you to get things done. If it's something else like a really nice guy or gal is really good with numbers, that's good stuff. But if they don't mention something that is the core of, hey, you're just going to get things done, then maybe start out with the smaller stuff or maybe work on yourself first before you buy anything. I think that's a very, very good point. As you said, it's kind of hard to measure how well you handle adversity, but I like how you said, how have you handled it in the past? Because I can sit here right now and be like, oh yeah, I'm great at handling adversity. But, and you'd say, well, how do you know that, Theo? And I don't have any evidence in my past of me going through it, then you really don't know what's going to happen when you face challenges. If you would have asked me before I bought my first property, how I faced adversity, like, oh dude, I played sports back in school and worked out and didn't stop, things like that. I would have been like, oh, I face adversity really well. And I would be tricking myself because once I faced real adversity at my real estate, when like money was on the line, and I guess that's key too. How do you face adversity when there's actually your own money on the line? How do you react to that? And for me, I reacted very poorly. And now I went through that. I've kind of reflected on it and I'm now self-aware of what I can handle, which is why I'm going to make sure that I'm just outside my reach, but not extending so far that I have a some sort of you know, psychological meltdown. But and what you said, I think is very important. And I think it's, it's hard to measure in a good way is yes, ask other people. Don't say, how do you think I handle adversity? Because they're probably going to say, oh, you know, you handle adversity great because they're your friend. So you got to mm-hmm. ask them, as you said, you know, what are my strengths? So they'll be more honest. And then also evaluating your past and see how you handle adversity in general, but also how you handle adversity when you've had money on the line in some form or fashion. You texted me a couple of days ago. We won't get into details. But you texted me and you said, hey, I need some help with some stuff. And we got on a call and my main message was anything that comes up that is seemingly negative, the question we always ask ourselves is how can I use this? Mm -hmm. How can I use this so that I am better off because it happened? And one of two approaches there. One is you use it so that you truly are able to leverage that experience and is actually a really good thing that it happened because it took you in a different direction or you're building on it. Or the other thing, it kind of sucks that it happened, but you learn from it. And now you know how to mitigate it from happening again as much as possible. And that sets you up for success in the long run because then you attempt to not repeat the same things that transpired. If we have that mindset when stuff goes down, then that's setting us up for success. And that's the approach that I always take when adversity hits. Yeah. And in that particular situation where you're talking about when I ask you for advice, my point is when something happens, like you have like some sort of negative event happen in your life, the root of it is most likely not the thing that actually triggered it. It probably goes back a couple of months, a couple of years, even maybe for this particular situation, there were decisions I made months or years ago that kind of like led up to the point I'm at now. And so once you kind of resolve that problem and fix all those problems from the past year, now you know, like, okay, I identify where this all began. Now moving forward, when that event occurs again, instead of doing it the way I did it before, I can do it differently and nip the problem in the butt now so that in a year from now, I'm not facing the exact same problem. I know that's very vague because I'm not necessarily giving a specific example, but that's kind of what I did. I'm reflecting on the situation that I had advice on you for. It was just about some relationship issues with real estate agent and 
another real estate investor. But no, it worked out perfectly. The issue is resolved now. And I guess we can transition into our, yeah. our updates now and I can talk about the direct mailer and things like that if you want. Yeah, last point and then yeah, let's move on. The decisions that were made a couple of years ago or whatever that you decided to change you did it in an instant, right? Tony Robbins always talks about that. You can make all these decisions years ago and then that's led you to all this stuff that you're doing now, but you make a change in an instant. And he always snaps his finger to make that point. And when you made that change in an instant, then it changed your whole trajectory. And that's something to keep in mind for all of us, myself included. We are programmed just to go through life in certain capacities in certain areas of our life. But if we really stop and think, wait, when did I decide to act this way? Or when did I decide to think this thing? Then when we are conscious about it, we can change in an instant. All right, sweet. Let's roll. All right. So yeah, for direct mail live. So the advice I had for you was on the direct mailing and I'm going to continue to use the agent where I'm going to give her the go ahead today to start preparations for the second mailer. Something that I learned from evaluating these deals and I'm not necessarily sure why I wasn't doing this before, but there was one deal that I was looking at that if I had done my underwriting in a way that was doing like a five-year projection or a 10-year projection, I probably would have bought the deal. But for some reason, when I was underwriting the deals, I was just looking at it as if, will it meet my return expectations from day one? Oh, which obviously yeah. is not what you want to do. So I'm looking at deals and it's like, well, this is a 2% cash on cash return at this purchase price and at these rents. Now, it is true that this particular property, I don't think that the rents could be raised that much. But if they were raised, it would have made a little bit more sense. I guess my point is I should have done further investigations. Um, the deal's gone now, and so it is what it is. But moving forward, when I get these deals, I'm going to use a new cash flow calculator and put information so that I have, obviously, the day one, year one cash flow, which is what it is when I'm buying it, and then have a plan of whatever my business plan is and then inputting that in there as well. For some reason, there's a disconnect because you know when I'm underwriting apartment deals, obviously it's what I do, but there just was a disconnect between that and these smaller buildings for some reason in my mind. And I just realized when I was taking my dog for a walk this morning, I was like, wait, what, what are you doing, Theo? You shouldn't be doing this. So I'm glad I learned that lesson and I'm going to apply that moving forward. People ask about the cap rates that we're buying properties at, which is a relevant question. But the more relevant question is, what's your business plan with the properties that you're buying? Can you tell me about the business plan? Mm-hmm. Because cap rates just show what cash flow you would get if you were to buy it all cash based on existing financials. But it does not show the business plan results. Mm -hmm. whenever it's implemented. And that's really the question because I mentioned this at the Philadelphia conference, Dave Van Horn's conference, phenomenal conference, by the way, where I did the keynote. And I use this example where I've got an investor who invests in Manhattan and the group he invests with there buys buildings at two caps. At first, he's like, what the heck? Two cap? I don't think so, buddy. I'm not investing with you. But then this group has a way to generate really good returns because of the business plan. And basically, the business plan is renovating units like we do, but they purchase rent-stabilized properties. And the thing improper happening at the property where the rent-stabilized tenant 
is giving his or her lease to someone else. I think there's some type of electronic key card and some other stuff. I'm not familiar with this business model as much, but the point is that a group in New York, and I'm sure there are many groups buying at two caps, but generating pretty healthy returns. And it's because of the business plan. And same with your example, if you're looking at, and you know this, but just kind of summarizing, if you're looking at what it will generate right out of the gate, well, it's necessary to know, but if we're long-term investors, and even if we're not, if we're buying for like five years, I still think we should 1031 from that. It's more important. What's the annualized projected return over those five years? Exactly. So I'm going to take my existing cash flow calculator that's just one year, very basic, simple model. I might just put in a 30-year that have a snapshot around the five-year because what I was doing before made zero sense. And as you said, as investors, we're adding value to these buildings, and that's kind of how we're rewarded with these rents. And if you're not taking that into account, you're never, not never, but you're going to have a hard time finding a deal that's meeting your return expectations from day one if your return expectations are based off of adding value. So yeah, <laughs> I'm glad I figured that out when I was taking my dog for a walk this morning. <laughs> yeah, because there's an art to underwriting and a lot of investors don't recognize that. There's an art to how you see value in what you can create in an apartment community. I think that's one area that my company excels at is identifying where value is and having the right team to execute on it. Mm -hmm. And if we were to just do those year one numbers, and I'm not beating a dead horse, or maybe I am, but I'm just kind of illustrating a slightly different point, but on the same subject. If we were running the numbers just on year one, then we're competing against all the other investors who are running the numbers on year one. And we're basically all arriving, or most of us arriving at the same point. Whereas if we see a different vision for the property, then we can arrive at a slightly different location with terms and price and make probably more money than those who were running the numbers the other way because we've actually got a business plan that we're going to execute. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. And then another update. So I got my next meetup group tonight. I'm really excited about that. All right. Is that a local town hall thing or what? No, it was actually funny. I made another mistake. My last meetup, I changed it to a brewery. And I mentioned how I didn't confirm with them the night before that they would be there. And so I show up and I have all these pizzas and <laughs> the doors are locked. And I basically messaged a person like, hey, I'm here. What's going on? And I don't get a response for like 10 minutes. I'm just sitting there like freaking out. But of course, she ends up messaging me and say, hey, he's inside. He's preparing and we'll be there. Who's he? Are you talking about the ho- the person at the... Uh, yeah, the person that owns the brewery, yeah. Okay, got it. So at the end of the meetup, I confirmed for the next month, okay, we're going to do it again on this day. Is it cool to become? Like, yeah, sure. I was like, oh, it's, like, it's so nice that you're doing this. So I go to a confirm last night, which I should have confirmed last week or multiple weeks ago, but they're not in town for the meetup. So the venue basically canceled. And I'm sitting there and I was like, well, it's kind of annoying. But fortunately, I did my first meetup at a restaurant. So I had a backup plan automatically and kind of changed the venue. But again, that was just kind of an example of, Probably a couple of years ago, I would run around the house in circles, but I just the brewer- A brewery is not open on a Wednesday night? Yeah, so they're actually only open on Thursdays through Saturdays, just because it huh. just opened up. So they weren't even going to be open on Wednesdays. They plan on just coming just for us. 
but they just happened to be out of town. I think it was just miscommunication. All right, got it. Huh. Yeah, I just I, I messaged them. It's like, oh no, of course. So I got 14 people signed up. We're gonna meet at a restaurant, and it's gonna go great. And I'm looking forward to seeing everyone again tonight. It's just a real estate meetup. It's very similar to the one that you host in Cincinnati. And for anyone who has not attended, which is the majority of the people who are listening, high level, what's the structure? Uh, you show up. If it's your first time, you give an introduction, explain what you do. For both of my meetups, it's, everyone's brand new, so it happened both times. And then you explain what your outcome is for attending this meetup. I got that question from you, and I really like it because I want the meetup to be very outcome-oriented. And then we'll go over any needs or wants. And so if someone has a question on a deal they have, if they have a general question of how should I get started, well, we can do that. We talk about that as a group. And then if you came the previous week and you set a goal that I have a Facebook group that you're going to post it to, you'll give an update on your goal. And then if you have any questions or need advice on that, you can do that. And the goal is to have that be like the first 15 to 20 minutes of the meetup. That way everyone there knows exactly what everyone else does. So when we break apart into just kind of freestyle networking, people know who to go to, that they have similar interests, they're doing similar things. And that seems to work out and result in, based on my past two experiences, the best and most fruitful conversations. And afterwards, everyone's like, oh, Theo, thanks for putting this together. I really appreciate it. I'm learning so much. I'm not sure about your experience, but the majority of people that come to these things, at least starting out, there's a couple of people that have like a lot of experience, but most people haven't done a deal yet. So I think it's really cool to see that. I see myself and a lot of those people when I was first starting. And I just explained to them, hey, give them advice that they just obviously don't know. And it's fun to do. And I really enjoy it. That's cool. Well, congrats on that. And looking forward to hearing how it goes. Awesome. And then this last quick update on my rentals, my three, four units. We have two units that are vacant right now. One of them, we've also secured a tenant for. We're just kind of going back and forth with the background checks and stuff. We're having a little issues renting the other one bedroom unit because we have it listed at 685 but or another unit that's for rent, not on the same street, but close enough for 575 And so we think that that might be one of the reasons why we're having issues getting it rented. So we're going to lower the rent, lower the listing down to 625 to get it filled. There's a couple of other things or why I don't think it's getting rented that I will have to address with my property manager, but we don't need to talk about that. Real quick, can you? Yeah. Again, real quick, just real quick. Another, what are they? It's another silly mistake on my end. The unit was occupied by a heavy smoker. And we refinished the hardwood, we repainted the walls, and I was told that the cabinetry and the toilet and the other objects in the unit were fine, they weren't that dirty. And then when I looked at the listing and saw the pictures, they're all obviously... Got the yellow? Yeah, the yellow. And so like, we need to yeah. paint it or we need to paint it or replace it because like, no one's going to want to live there yeah. like that. So I think that's why it's not being rented out. So I just noticed that a couple of days ago. So I've reached out to my property manager and we're going to get that address. It's not going to be anything too expensive. Like we're not going to have to replace the cabinets. We're going to have to paint them because they didn't paint it before. I don't think it's a smell issue. It's just an aesthetic look issue, especially with the, with the super pearly white walls that we just painted. And then you've got the contrast of the, <laughs> the, the, the stained yellow cabinets. So that's <laughs> <laughs> gross. It's gross. Yeah. Yeah. But, you got to get that replaced or painted. All right. That's, that's what I, I got. What about you? Joe? And you have, tw- you have 12 units, right? Well, technically 13 now because of that single family that we have. Yeah, okay. That single family aside, you have 12 in the little cluster, Mm -hmm. right? And two of them are vacant, right? Two units are vacant, yeah. So you're at 83% occupancy. Yep. You concerned about that? 
Not really. How come? Because they know they're going to get rented and I've already raised the rents on other units and they're not necessarily making up for the loss in rent that I'm getting. But overall, I'm still cash flow positive. I'm not losing money. It's like, obviously prefer they're all rented, but it hasn't even been a month yet. And I'm very confident that they're going to be rented by June 1 or probably by the next couple of weeks. Cool. And you're in the middle of the business plan too, because you acquired them less than a year ago, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. What do I got going on? We got 809, I had to do the math, 890 units under contract right now. Wow. One 564 unit and one 326 unit. All of them were off market deals through either broker relationships or relationship that we actually had with someone who found the deal and then wasn't able to close on it because they didn't have the ability to. So we had that relationship with them and now we have 890 units under contract. So excited about that. We closing, uh, this is, we're in May now. So we closing next month. That's, as you can imagine, taking up my primary focus for all those deals, all the equity spoken for. It's actually been a little shocking and surprising aren't the right words, but those are the first two that came to mind, how quickly it was spoken for the equity. I don't know if my business has reached a tipping point with investors based on our track record and this podcast growing and other things, but for both of them and combined it's 24 million in equity and it took in total for that 24 million seven days total for 24 million dollars in equity so i'm not sure if that's a sign of things to come or if it was just pent-up demand or we did some refinances on one of our deals in particular recently and that was a pretty good one so got a lot of investors rolling that into these deals but it's a far cry from when I first got started or even not when I first, but early days after the first deal, when I was messaging people on LinkedIn who lived in Houston, who I hadn't spoken to in 10 years that I have an apartment building, I'd love to connect with them again and talk to them about what they're up to and oh, by the way, got a deal. (laughs) And that didn't work at all, by the way. So don't do that. That that was not effective. I literally did not get one investor from that. Although they should have. They definitely should have. That project's turned out really, really well. So it's gratifying is what it is. It's, It's gratifying to be in that position. Now, again, I don't know if that's a sign of things that come for future deals or if these deals are unique or what, but I certainly have a lot of uh, gratitude towards where we're at right now. Either like a general number or you can be specific if you can. That $24 million in equity was raised across how many investors? Mm, on average, I'd say investors invest 200000 or so, whatever that is. I have to use a calculator. It's not my Microsoft calculator. I'm a, so whatever, what is it? $24 million divided by 200000 120. Yeah, so uh, approximately 120 and then, investors. And then, and then for your first deal, how many investors did you have? 12. So that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And they're part of that 120. All of them didn't invest on these last two deals, but certainly a large percent have on these last two. So it's been great. 
Then you mentioned that um, one of the deals you got through a broker relationship, obviously, but the other one you said you got it through someone who couldn't close themselves. Was that another investor? And then how do they find you? How do you find them? Through Frank's friend, she knows someone. So follow the breadcrumbs a little bit. But Frank's friend, who he knows through, I believe, his time at Bucknell. He's a civil engineer major, and I think he knows her through that. Or maybe it's their alumni network. I can't quite remember. But anyway, she knew someone who got this property under contract and tied it up at a ridiculous price per unit and wasn't able to follow through on it. So we said, yes, please, we can do that. And ended up putting ourselves in the position. Now we've got it and moving forward. That shows you how important it is to let people know what you do. I can't remember exactly the context that this came up. You were talking about maybe on last week's follow on Friday about letting people know that you raise money for apartments or that you invest in apartments or that you're in apartments or real estate. That way, a year from now or a month from now or tomorrow or the exact same day, someone has some sort of person or deal for you, they'll bring it up. And if they don't know, then you don't know how many opportunities you're missing out on. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. What else you got going on, Joe? That's it. Awesome. That's my primary focus. Well, congratulations. That's 800 plus units under contract. That's impressive. All right. So just to wrap up, make sure you guys join the best ever community on Facebook. That's bestevercommunity.com. We have some really great questions on there. And we get a lot of great responses and we use those responses to create a blog post, obviously add value to other people's lives, but also to include some of you guys on the best ever blog and kind of get your name out there. The question of the week we have this week is, is it better as real estate investors to focus on one strategy or more than one? So if you go to bestevercommunity.com, it won't be pinned to the top, but it'll be relatively close to the top of the page. You can go on there and read the comments and then post there if you want to be featured in a blog post next week. Yeah, really some thought provoking stuff. I love that question because I know some investors who focus on one market, but multiple strategies within the market. Whereas my company primarily focuses on Dallas, Fort Worth, and we've got some in Houston too, but Dallas, Fort Worth has been our focus and we only do apartments and we only do apartment investing. And then others who are just value-add investors. I've interviewed value-add investors who just buy commercial, office, retail, apartments, single-family homes, large ones. They do Airbnb. I believe in the power of focus for sure. But after being educated and exposed to all these investors and their approaches, I believe the power of focus can be concentrated in different ways or defined differently. So I personally focus on apartment investing. That's my power of focus. And I know someone else who focuses on Charleston, South Carolina. That's his power of focus. And he does all different stuff within Charleston. Or some investors, this gets a little bit outside of the power of focus in my opinion, but others are just value-add commercial real estate investors. And they are just incredibly smart with underwriting different types of deals and they just find value added deals, which I believe gets a little away from focusing, Mm -hmm. but still they've got one area that they always focus on and that's adding value to some type of property. I'm looking forward to reading all the responses and seeing what people are having success with, especially if they're doing, doing multiple things. I would imagine that if they're doing not necessarily completely different strategies, but if they are expanding their focus, it's probably because they got really good at one thing and then that's kind of like on an autopilot and then they're adding in something else just to expand. 
So tomorrow, we will be doing the first ever, best ever debate that's not between me and Joe. It's me versus somebody else about short-term rentals versus long-term rentals. I'm really excited about that conversation. Which side do you have? Long-term rentals. Oh, that's going to be tough on the cash flow. I think you got some good points. Oh, yeah. All right. I don't, don't want to give it yeah, a yeah, away right now. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. That's I don't want my competition to hear what I have to say and then use it against me. <laughs> you, you might get destroyed with the short-term cash flow. If they go in and talk about short-term cash flow, I hope you got some good rebuttals. I do. Um, <laughs> so that's us tomorrow at 4 p.m. And if you're watching live on Facebook now, it'll be in this exact same spot on the Joe Fairless Facebook page. If you're listening on the podcast, then you can go to the Joe Fairless Facebook page to listen to the replay. But if you want to listen to it live tomorrow, it will be at facebook.com slash Joe Fairless. So regardless of how you're going to listen to it, that is where it will be. And again, that's tomorrow, which is Thursday, the 3rd at 4 p.m. And then to finish off, make sure you guys go to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review. It really helps us out to learn what we're doing, how we're doing. And if you do, you'll have the opportunity to be the review of the week and have your review read live on the podcast. This week, we've got Henry L.L., he says, I listen to a ton of podcasts across many genres, and this is one of my favorites. Joe provides consistently high-quality content by covering a broad range of real estate strategies, whether you want to fix and flip, buy and hold, single-family homes, buy notes, or syndicate apartment buildings. I also love how the Skill Set Sundays discuss skills applicable to other parts of your life, like persuasion and developing great relationships. End review. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) End quote. Hey, Henry, thank you so much. And thanks for mentioning the Skill Set Sunday episodes too. They're actually the least listened to episodes. So we got regular episodes and we got Situation Saturday, actually Saturday and basically Saturday and Sunday episodes, Situation Saturday and Skill Set Sunday episodes have the lowest amount of listens. And I've always wondered, is it because they're on the weekend? Because Not a lot of people listen as often on the weekend versus during the week. So it's good to hear your feedback on the skill set Sundays because I like them. I like that they're very specific about a particular skill that's relevant to us as real estate investors and entrepreneurs. So I appreciate the review and also, quite frankly, the vote of confidence in that type of segment. And everyone else, if you can leave it, well, you can, you're able to, you're physically able to. So if you may... Is that that even right if you may leave a review? Please leave a review. (laughs) Please leave a review. That will help us build the community, get better guests, or continue to get high-quality guests and have the best content possible for you. So thanks, everyone, for spending some time with us. Grateful for that. Looking forward to talking to you again tomorrow. You looking for a one-stop landlording software that helps you create listings, find and screen tenants, and accept rental payments while managing maintenance requests? Oh, by the way, it's zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever. The Invest This podcast interviews the elite in real estate investment to uncover the secrets to building an empire in every aspect of real estate investment. Visit investthispodcast.com. That's I-N-V-E-S-T-T-H-I-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com for the top 10 real estate books to build your empire and to learn more.